The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them, because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Today's guest, Naomi Gleit, started at a little company you may have heard of called Facebook in 2005, working as a marketing administrative assistant. One of Facebook's first employees, Naomi has worked on almost every major initiative at the company, including most recently the COVID-19 Information Center, as well as the Voter Information Center. She was a founding member and leader of the growth team that helped Facebook grow from 1 million people when she joined 14 years ago to over 3 billion today. Regarded as one of the most powerful women in tech, Naomi is now the Vice President of Product and Social Impact, leading the platform's efforts to register people to vote, donate blood, pitch into causes they care about, and other projects to promote people doing good. We had a really fun conversation about trusting your own path, never taking no for an answer, and learning to focus our efforts on the things that we can actually control. I hope you enjoy. All right. Hello, Naomi. I'm so excited to see your face. I'm going to just make you a little bit bigger here. Where am I finding you? I'm in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm in Soho right now. Um, Yeah. Thank you for having me, Sarah. This is really exciting. I know you said I do podcasts, but I think I've done like a podcast. So really? Okay. Then I feel very, (laughs) I feel very lucky and very special because I think that you're going to be a very good and fun guest today. So what, what brought you to New York for the summer? So I'm originally from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Park Slope. I went to school there until I was 18. And then I moved to California for 18 years. And I sort of feel like this is the third chapter. Chapter one, I grew up in Brooklyn. Chapter two has been in California. And now this is like chapter three, the return to New York. But you know, after COVID, I really wanted to be in a city mm-hmm. in New York. One of your other guests said New York is lit, and I completely agree. Reshma, it's like in the yes. heights. Reshma. Reshma was saying that. Best city in the world. Mm-hmm. It's truly like in the heights at all times. Like the scenes from like choreographed dances in the streets. Oh, well, yeah. You know, I, I went to New York, and it was really fun. And especially compared to L.A., it had so much more energy. I didn't see like anybody break out in like a dance mob, but perhaps I was on the wrong street. But it's funny that it, does, it feels like a little antithetical to how some people have responded to the to the pandemic, which is that like there's been this great disperse to the outer boroughs and people moving to Bedford and people moving upstate where they could have land. So it's interesting that you felt this time drew you to want to be in the city. Yeah, I think, you know, I spent a lot of time at home alone. I spent a lot of time with my family. And I think that I'm ready to get out in the world a little bit. And a bunch of friends are here. You know, we have a mutual friend, Charles. He also moved to New York. And so I was like, I think I'll come with you. Yes. Oh, that's so fun. Okay, so how have you been doing with everything? Or how are you really? So nice. How are you really? I'm good. I'm really good. I think obviously this was a really tough year for everyone. 
especially women, I think, again, you were talking maybe with Reshma, but one in four women are considering leaving the workforce because, and you and I were just talking about how hard it is to like work, have kids at home, try and do three jobs. And so it's been really hard for so many people. I think I've been relatively lucky. I've um, spent quite a bit of time, like I said, with my family. Mm -hmm. Um, But in some ways, that's time I definitely would not have uh, volunteered or like chosen to have lived with them under the same roof for so long. But I'm really glad I did. Totally. That's well, that's the sort of funny thing too, right? Like one of my questions that I like to ask is like, we're also acutely aware of everything that we've lost, but what's something that you feel like you've gained during this time, aside from unwanted time with your family, perhaps? <laughs> and I mean, I think that's a great question because I do think I've gained things. I've gained this family time. There's this blogger, um, Tim Urban, I think, and he writes on Wait But Why. And he has this article about how 95% of the time that you're ever going to spend with your parents happens before the age of 18, because never again are you really going to be from zero to 18 with them 24 seven under the same roof, theoretically. But I feel like I sort of got more time with them. Again, like in a way that I would not have, you know, I have my own place, they have their own place. But um, we spent the summer together living in Malibu, and basically not leaving the house. And so I feel like I got that percent of time during a lockdown in a pandemic. Yeah. And it's so different. Also, you know, when you say things like that, too, because I look at it a little bit differently as a mom with young kids at home. And sometimes I am reminded of that, you know, because especially during this and we were talking offline, like my kids never really went to school during the pandemic, except for, for two months, for two and a half hours a day, four days a week, which is such a joke. So I would remember those kinds of facts to remind myself to be grateful for the time, you know, when I was like going into a room and like silently screaming into a pillow or, you know, whatever (laughs) I was doing to just be like, you know, one day I'm going to look back and think about, oh my God, we had all this time. But it is interesting too, like you're relating to your parents as an adult and it's such a different experience living with your parents and seeing them less as you are parents and more so just as other kind of humans going through something that's wild for them too. Totally, totally different like relationship that I have with them now and totally different appreciation for being with them. Um, Family is something that is really important to me. I tell this story about my grandma a lot. This is the lesson that I learned from her. My grandma um, is the person who has walked this earth that I feel most similar to. Like whenever people see me, they're like, you are a spitting image in your personality, your mannerisms of your grandma Selma. And my grandma lived in Florida. I was in California. I was working at a startup, which at that time was Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I was really busy. And I didn't have time to answer her phone calls. And I didn't have time to go visit her. And I didn't have time to write her letters. And, you know, long story short, I really regretted that because I didn't have an opportunity to spend that time with her when I was less busy. You know, I tried to move her out to California, both of her her kids and all of her grandkids, my dad, my uncle, the four grandkids were in California. And I really wanted her to like sort of be with the rest of the family and she became really ill and she wasn't able to make that trip. Yeah. And so ever since then, you know, I tattooed her name on my chest, actually. I know. 
I Naomi, I didn't know this. You you tattooed her name on your. You chest. didn't know this? No. Yeah, I mean it's small. But is it a reminder for you to be more present? It is a reminder for me to take the opportunity to spend time with my family before it goes away. And like I said, she always dreamed of moving to California. And it's a really amazing story because she always wanted to stay at the JCC. Mm-hmm. That is the Jewish Community Center. and that. JCC. Okay, great. Well, they have a retirement home in Palo Alto and she really wanted to be there and there were no rooms available. And by some miracle, a room became available and we bought it for her and we furnished it for her. And we flew her all the way out from Florida and all of our family gathered from all over the country to come and welcome her to California, the last chapter. And she died 24 hours later. No. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's when I got the tattoo. Oh my gosh. That is giving me chills. Cause a lot of times people say that there's like sort of a innate understanding of when your time has come and that people will hold on to be able to say proper goodbyes and so beautiful, but heartbreaking. I know. And I think it was like her final gift was giving us the gift of having each other. What be, what was supposed to be her welcoming party became her funeral. So we were all there to grieve and celebrate her together. So yes, that is the lesson for me that I have inscribed in my you know, side boob um, from Selma Glight. Oh my gosh. Well, okay. We're, we're I want to get a little bit more to that, but I, I always like to ask, like, tell me something fun. What is the last lie that you told? Okay. So I'm the worst liar ever. Mm -hmm. I'm so bad. So bad. I just like, I can't do it, but I do tell a lot of white lies and I know that's bad, but sometimes I just think it's better to not tell the truth. Um, This actually happens a lot because I'm actually an introvert. COVID meant that I didn't have to make up excuses for why I couldn't go out and see my friends. And now that we're back in reentry, I find myself saying things like, I'm out of town or like I'm working when I don't actually want to go to a party because I'm, I'm awkward. Right. Well, I don't, I've never found you awkward, but I've spoken with a couple of people who feel like they have had the sort of inverse reaction. I was always someone who felt really pretty comfortable being out, being social. And I do think that the last year plus has taken a toll where not only am I just more inclined to want to see him, but I, I myself like feel really socially inept sometimes. It doesn't flow in the same way. And then I have some friends who were more like you, who were always wanting to be homebodies and stay in. Yeah. And now they're like, get me out. You know, I want to, I want to be invited places. I want to go. I want to see people. And I wonder how it's all going to balance out when it's done. Totally. I know. I think it's like the pendulum swung one way and now I'm swinging the other way a little bit, but I think the sustainable Mm -hmm. (laughs) place is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But at least, you know, at least in New York, I think there's a lot more opportunity to be out. I know you were in Venice for a while, right? Where there does feel like there's the pedestrian aspect and you're out and about. It's a little bit more akin to New York and you might run into people versus if you live in LA, it's so easy to just kind of like get stuck in the house and you're not, you know, you don't have to go anywhere or you get in your car. So you're not engaging with people as much. Truly. And, and that is the difference. I think like you know, I have spent some time in LA. Um, that's how I think we met, actually. And LA is amazing. You know, I like to surf. Um, it's by the beach. That's why I'm in Venice. 
But New York has a walkability to it. Like I walk everywhere from one part of the city to the other. And you bump into people that you like never thought you'd see in a way that I don't feel like happens in LA. And also because of that, there's this like serendipity to your day. Like you'll exit your apartment, walk outside. And like the other day I like ran into someone, then we got brunch, then their wife came, then I went to their apartment, then we decided to see like the movie across the street. It just sort of is this like unfolding of a day that you didn't even plan. Okay. So let's talk about, cause I think you'll have a very interesting perspective on this. There's a kind of idea that we're sold in society as women, especially about the notion of having it all. And I wonder if that was something that you ever subscribed to, and if so, what you thought it would look like. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that I definitely had a vision in my mind of what having it all meant. And when that did not pan out the way that I thought it would be, someone actually gave me a stamp. And that stamp said, what messes you up most in life is the story in your head of how it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Because I try not to be too attached to specific outcomes and um, just be open to whatever life brings. A really good example of this for me is growing up, I really wanted to go to Harvard. I grew up in Brooklyn. My mom was from Taiwan. The only college that she knew of was Harvard. And she was a little bit of a tiger mom. And I spent like the first 18 years of my life trying to get into Harvard. And I believe that when I got there, everything would be amazing and I would be, I would be happy. And I went to Harvard and I was miserable. And two weeks into getting there, I realized that I had to transfer. And that was such a ballsy thing, I think, at that age. Because like, I know everyone is trying to go to Harvard. It's like all the cars are going in one direction on the road to Harvard. And there's this like one sole car making a U-turn and like going in the opposite direction. And I was like, kind of like out there. I was like, maybe I should go to an alternative education college in the woods. Maybe I should go to Deep Springs, which at that time was boys only. I applied to Deep Springs as like a protest application Oh my god! because I was a woman. I know. I was listening to a lot of Ani DeFranco. Um, <laughs> Same. And died for right? died for her. Yeah. Wait, what was it, Naomi? Because that's such a testament to you and yourself, your sense of self, to have aspired to something for so long. And it sounds like not just for you, but also for your family and for your mom. And to get there and to recognize that that wasn't for you. Can you put your finger on what it was that didn't sit with you? I I honestly I don't even know if it was one thing. I know that I got there and it didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. I think that leaving or giving up on this sort of dream that I'd always had was the hardest thing that I've, one of the hardest things that I've done because I feel like I let everyone down. I let myself down. I failed. My mom is still like deeply disappointed that I didn't um, end up graduating from Harvard. But years later, I think it all makes sense. Like at the time, I couldn't see it. It was the worst year of my life to date. And I ended up transferring to Stanford. I fell in love with California. Mm-hmm. I graduated from Stanford. I started working at Facebook. And sort of the rest is history. That really was 
Like there are a few decisions that you make in your life that really change the outcome or the trajectory and, and transferring, moving to California was one of them. And I think at the time I thought like leaving Harvard was the biggest decision ever. Like I'm never going to see these people again. I've like, you know, two roads diverged in a yellow wood and I took one. Of course. And, sorry, I could not travel both. And it turned out that like, honestly, I got to California and Facebook and a lot of my friends that I met that year are now at Facebook or in California. They're friends today. And so things are not that binary. And it's also like the best thing I think that I've done. Like what seemed like the worst made sense later as like actually how I ended up where I am today. It's so funny. I actually had a, like a really good friend in college and we got those matching. Do you remember the Tiffany bracelet was the silver bracelet with the heart? Yes. And this is not the bean. It's not a heart. the bean. Okay. It was, I think it was like post bean. It was, the, it was the heart and on it was inscribed and that made all the difference. Really? Yes. So obviously we are nerds who enjoy the same quotes. Same poetry. Exactly. Yeah. That's so interesting. So how long were you at Harvard before you knew that it was time to go? It was really early. I like, because you had to submit applications to transfer mm -hmm. within three months of arriving. Um, I was already working on that. Um, and my mom took me out to California to visit different colleges like Deep Spring. Mm -hmm. And Stanford was ended up being amazing. It's like adult summer camp for, for kids or like, you know, it's summer camp for adults, basically. Adult children. Your kids, but yeah. Adult children. Exactly. You know, I studied science, technology, and society as my major. And that's how I learned about Facebook. And then when I graduated, I went to work at Facebook. I wrote my thesis at Stanford on why Facebook was going to be a very successful company. And in 2005, that was not necessarily clear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like, my mom is like, are you telling me? But you were Nostradamus. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. I just like, again, had a, it didn't, you know, it felt right, actually. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it felt like in the same way that Harvard felt wrong, like Facebook felt really important. I know, but and... now I'm understanding that, that Naomi Glide is like an oracle. And I'm just going to try to tap, <laughs> tap into the fact that like you seem like deeply sort of connected to maybe the signs of the universe. And by the way, some people say that we all get them and it's just about, you know, whether or not we are willing to respond or willing to hear them. And it sounds like not only did you get the call, but you answered the phone. And that's really cool. Thanks, Sarah. I've never has ever called me an oracle. I wish I <laughs> was more intuitive about my own life. But I, yes, definitely thought Facebook was going to be an important company. It was more than just like, I think at that time there was like college students only um, on the site. I had to explain to everyone that I was like going to work at this random startup that's like Friendster. And I interviewed to be Sean Parker's personal assistant. Actually, that's how it all happened. Facebook is in Palo Alto mm -hmm. and Stanford's in Palo Alto. And so the office was just down the street from the campus. And I went, not only did I pick up the phone for, or like pick up the call when I sort of had this feeling, I went every single day to the office to be like, are you hiring? Is there anyone, anything I can help with? They were like, no, we are only hiring engineers. At that time, everyone worked in one little room. And I was like, okay, but like, you know, if and when something becomes available, you'll let me know. Right. And 
eventually Sean Parker was hiring for a personal assistant and that's how I got my foot in the door. Right now. So for an introvert, this feels like super ballsy and bold, right? To go in person, to virtually accost them. and Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, to honestly, to have the, that sort of self-conviction at such a young age. So something I like to discuss is the idea of designing a life that fits for you. And, and I was going to ask you this because when we envision what our life will look like, okay, so you obviously, you wrote your thesis on Facebook. You then joined Facebook and still work there today. I have to assume like post-college, everything that you envisioned for your life was oriented around Facebook. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I've been at Facebook for 16 years Mm -hmm. and I started as a personal assistant, but my dream was always to be a product manager and a product manager like works. It's on the technical side. You work with the engineers, you work with the designers to build products. And now I run the product management function at Facebook. So I'm working at my dream company in my dream job. Mm -hmm. First of all, startup culture seems to be so specific. You have to like, you really be in the belly of the beast being at Facebook, especially in those very early days, even to now, do you find that that's a environment in which you thrive and or do you know any different? So interesting. I, if I hadn't gone to Facebook, I probably would have gone to business school. I was really interested in organizational theory and development. And the truth is working at Facebook at a startup, at a company that grew and was so successful and being a part of that has been the best education business school education that I could have gotten. And so it was absolutely a startup. Um, I think now we have close to 60,000 employees, which is wild. Yeah. But it still feels in some way like a startup even today. Back then, I think I definitely learned so much because there's so few people doing responsible for so many things that you end up you know, doing stuff that you might not be necessarily qualified to do. Right. Like I remember I was like selling ads at one point and I'm like, I don't know how to sell ads or like I was responsible. One of my first projects was having the ability for high school students to join Facebook. It was called, you know, Facebook high basically. And like, I, I had, I mean, these are things that like, not only had I never done, I think to some degree were like new things in technology and the like internet. Right. But that's what's so, you know, like, I think the thing that's interesting about deciding what you want to do with your life at such an early age is that it's very easy to have a romanticized notion of what that entails. It's like the way that you thought your whole life would be made and you would feel happy if you just got into Harvard. And then upon getting there, realize that the story that you were telling yourself just wasn't true. But to be able to be in a company like that, when it's such early days and there's such a huge amount of growth is you do get to, like you said, try all these different things. And it really eliminates for you really quickly. Like, okay, I don't want to do ad sales. I don't want to do this. You know, like you're able to not only hone your skills in such a wide range of capacities, but also to know firsthand, like what you are and aren't good at. What do you feel like has been the kind of the biggest challenge for you during your time there versus what comes more naturally to you? Because when you started, there were very few people, right? Yeah. When I started, um, I think there was, we all worked in one room mm-hmm. and now we have offices all over the world. I think one of the hardest things was, I mentioned that my dream was to become a product manager and 
I think that it wasn't clear that I had any of the skills required to be a product manager. And at that time, all of the non-technical people worked on the third floor and all of the engineers and product managers worked on the second floor. And so obviously I was on the third floor. And over the next few months, I just started walking downstairs to the second floor and seeing yet again, sort of like, you know, when I would go by the office and see if they were hiring, I would go to the engineers and see if there was anything that I could do to help be helpful and, you know, try to shadow some of the other product managers and learn skills from them. And I remember interviewing to be a product manager and I sort of learned a little bit on the job just Mm -hmm. by observing other people and helping out here and there. And when I took my desk and like, you know, uh, packed up all my things and walked down the stairs to move desks from the third floor to the second floor. When I came down, I came to everybody standing and clapping with a round of applause to celebrate like me becoming this, you know, me find like getting, getting my dream job. So I think stuff like that has been like hard, but also amazing yeah, I guess I, I guess because Facebook actually has been my first, it was, it's kind of like my first real, real job. I've done a lot of different things prior, but I never worked at a company, like mm-hmm. a real company before. And I mean, back then it wasn't even a company. And so it was. it's just learning on the job, like you said. And I feel really lucky that I've been able to be there for so long, for 16 years. But I felt, I feel like I've had many different jobs over that time. I haven't been doing the same thing. I've been like different roles on different projects, learning new skills. Right. Could you have studied something specific during your time at Stanford to help you more sort of seamlessly transition into that role as a product manager that you didn't? Definitely. I did not have a technical background. And I think, you know, and maybe Reshma, you know, appreciates this too. I think it wasn't even in my consideration set. Like I wasn't, it didn't even realize that maybe I should take engineering classes and learn to code. That wasn't something that I thought I could do or was an option. But I think now looking back that absolutely it was. And I think it would have helped me in my job. Although 16 years ago or, you know, 20 years ago when you were in school, it was not like the forefront of the conversation. It was probably was not as apparent to you as exactly. you school a little bit later. And exactly. you ended up in the same place anyway. So, you know, all is well that ends yeah. well. I recently read, and I don't know if this is true, that next to Mark Zuckerberg, you are the longest standing member at Facebook. Yes. That's wild. So, (laughs) and then I read that you guys had signed up, was it some sort of teaching initiative or something where you went in to meet with high school students? Yeah. And that's a great, a great story. I was in a really sort of dark place at the time. I was kind of depressed. I had been in a long-term relationship for seven years and it ended. And to your point about like, a vision for what having it all looks like. I I kind of thought I was going to get married and have kids with this person and it didn't pan out that way. And that's actually when someone gave me that stamp that I mentioned about what messes you up most in life is the story in your head of how it's supposed to be. And and my story was being married uh, and having children and like living my life with this person. So that did not you know, come to fruition. And I was kind of sad. And Mark asked me if I wanted to teach a class with him. And I think that was his way of asking, like, do you want to get out of this like funky zone that you're Mm -hmm. in right now and like help other people? And we ended up teaching a class on how to build a business. Can you imagine, can you imagine like Mark teaching a class on how to build a business to a middle school? What year is this? This must've been like 10 years ago Mm -hmm. because 
we're still in contact with a lot of the kids that we met at that time. They were like 13 and 14. They were in, you know, middle school, maybe 12, 13. And we're we're still in contact with them. They're all just graduating from college now, four-year colleges now, which is really amazing. But Mark taught like every week. Mark and I taught every week, went to the class. And one of my favorite stories from that time is that's when Mark articulated for the first time I had heard sort of his four lessons to life. And he like wrote this on the chalkboard and lesson number one Mm -hmm. was love yourself. That could be hard to do. That is really hard. Mm -hmm. Like we could have a whole podcast about that, (laughs) but it is a requirement to love yourself Mm -hmm. in order to only then can you only, can you serve others? Three, focus on what you can control. Four, for those things, never give up. By the way, three, focus on what you can control is also very hard. Oh I have like a huge problem, like limiting myself to things within my control. I had a conversation about that today. Really? Yeah. With Ian, we were talking about something and he was talking about accepting the things that we cannot change. And I was like, but that, yeah. just like some challenges that I'm having right now. And I was like, but that's my lesson. Like I know the universe is giving me these things for this lesson, which is that I've never accepted things I can't control. And that has propelled me in a lot of ways. And it's pushed me to, you know, to try to perform better and to, to be my best self and to achieve all these different things that I want to. But it also is like a very slippery slope of if you have a vision of certain things and no matter what you do, you cannot change them. It's a really hard thing in life to learn to accept those things. I'm just, I'm not an acceptor. And I was like, this, exactly. is, this is my, this is my moment. This is my lesson. This is my challenge. I'm not an acceptor either. Someone once told me, uh, suffering is pain plus non-acceptance. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know Hi, yeah, here I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is interesting. They say like every, you know, every interruption, every challenge, everything that you think you know, was meant to go a certain way that's not, it is the universe bringing you something that you need to learn, right? And so then it's about, well, why am I learning these things? And when I read this, I just thought that's so interesting. Focus on what you can control. And I, I want to say something, and I, I don't know that this is going to be like kind of unpopular. I do think that some people are more preternaturally inclined towards that. You know, like my dad is incredible at being very skilled at compartmentalizing. It just doesn't, Hmm. he doesn't work at it. It's just, he doesn't give it a lot of thought. If he can't control it, he like his favorite statement Hmm. is it is what it is. And I'm like, Nope, it is. It it will be what I will want it to be. And if it's not, I will like whittle that square peg into the round hole until both the round hole and the square peg are totally damaged. And the whole (laughs) thing is like popped off, you know, and that's what I'm working on. That's if anybody has any ideas for how I can get better at this, please help out your girl because oof, that's a hard one. Your girls. It really is. My boss actually has this saying, he's like, Do you have a problem? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. And if it if if no, then don't worry about it. If yes, can you do something about it? If yes, great. If no, don't worry about it. But either way, all these scenarios like lead to don't worry about it. Right. 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 Well, isn't, well, Facebook, isn't Mark and Facebook famous for it's better done than perfect. Right. Which kind of feels like it's coming off of the back of worry about what you can control and don't worry about what you can't, which again, that's a big challenge. So you started as a marketing assistant, right. And you moved into more focus on growth 
with the intent I read on having every single person essentially on the planet (laughs) using the platform. So you felt that committed to the benefit of it that you wanted everybody to be signed up on Facebook. Yeah. And you have to remember at the time what Facebook was. It was not what it is today. It was mm-hmm. www.thefacebook.com. It was a website that you went to on your computer. It was the digital version of the physical Facebook that you used to get. I don't know if you got this when you went to college, but it was basically the faces and names of the people in your incoming class. And mm-hmm. if you were like me, we, you like, of course, stalked all those people to see who was like cute and you had a crush on. And so that's what Facebook was. It was like a photo and a name. You couldn't even do anything. You couldn't like write on people's walls or anything. There weren't any other photos. But I think even then it had the core of what it always has had, which is it helped you connect to people. It was really about the people around you. That was the beginning. And then, you know, once smartphones came out, like we all started building apps for phones. And now you have Facebook and Instagram and Messenger and WhatsApp on your phone. And and the theme of that is really just about connecting with people. It's the same theme, you know, posting photos on Instagram, messaging with your friends. Um, I'm talking to international friends on WhatsApp. Right. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) What what could go wrong? What could go wrong? So wait, Naomi, so early stages of building Facebook obviously as a networking platform, was social impact always something that was on the horizon as something that was going to be important? Or like you said, it grew probably beyond anyone. I was going to say beyond anyone's wildest dreams, but honestly, I imagine Naomi Glight as a young girl, like you had the wild dreams of it being, (laughs) you know, as your like mini Oracle, you knew that it was going to be this. Was the social impact piece something that was a response to just the enormous influence and size that it reached? Or was it something that was always part of the ethos of what it was aiming to do? I think the ethos, the mission was always around connecting people. Mm -hmm. Having a team dedicated to social impact was a result of, you know, having 3 billion people using your products every single day. When I joined, there was 1 million people 1 million college students using the facebook.com. And so to your point, you know, what, what could go wrong? Like we, we didn't know, and I didn't know either just how big it would get, Mm. but it makes sense because it's like human nature to want to connect. So when you have 3 billion people using your products every month, we wanted to create a team that was just focused on building tools that would help people do more good. Mm -hmm. And that's when we started the social impact team. That was five years ago. The thing that I am most proud of is our charitable giving tools. These are um, tools that let you donate and raise awareness around nonprofits and other causes. This was inspired by the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, which I'm sure everyone knows and did. The ALS website crashed because too many people were trying to load it and donate. And that's when we came up with the idea for it would be so much easier if you could just donate with one click. Mm -hmm. And since then... Five years later, the community has raised $5 billion for charity. And so these are just examples of reasons why I'm like, I'm a believer in like the the promise, like the good that can come from technology. Um, obviously, there's a lot of bad things that can happen too. And as someone who's working on building out these products and these tools, my responsibility is to focus on maximizing the good. 
building tools for people to raise money for charity, building tools for people to connect with each other during COVID and lockdown, helping people find their nearest vaccine site. Um, I mean, I've worked on so many things that I think are having a positive impact. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think, is there a particular challenge as a female leader in tech, the company being as relevant as it is and, you know, under recent scrutiny too, like, do you feel like there's more pressure on you as a woman, you know, in terms of how do you determine there's so many causes that could benefit from that platform? How do you determine where to kind of put your guys' efforts Yeah. Um, So I think that oftentimes, how do we determine where to put our efforts? Mm -hmm. The answer is in the products already. A lot of times we're inspired by what people are already doing. Again, the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge inspired charitable giving tools. We were seeing people use Facebook when there was a natural disaster or an earthquake to say they were safe. That's when we built Safety Check, which lets you like tell all your friends and family that you're safe with one click. Wait, Naomi, because I read that, but tell us a little bit more about that because that was in response to one of the earthquakes. So there's a one-click button where you can just immediately what post on your wall, I'm safe, I'm okay, right? Wow. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. For example, unfortunately, there was like, I guess, did you see in the news a building that collapsed in Miami and no. you know one person has been found dead and 51 people have not been recovered. And so- Is this just, are- just now? Just now, I saw this on on the news. Yeah, and obviously, I think anyone who knows anyone in Miami is just wondering, like, if their friends and family are mm-hmm. okay. And so that's when I think this kind of tool can be valuable. That that has to feel so rewarding, right? Listen, at the end of the day, you've also been at a company for sixteen years, and everybody knows that just the natural sort of ebb and flow of life and ambition and values and everything else you know, there has to be something incredibly sustaining about that and rewarding about feeling that you can point to, like you said, $5 billion raised for these organizations, all this incredible life-saving technology that has been able to come out of your time there and really feel like it's been for the greater good. And the numbers are really big, $5 billion, but the stories that you hear, the people that you meet for whom this was life-changing, my assistant at work, my chief of staff, her daughter raised enough money in the past few months to save the Oakland Zoo. She really loved the Oakland Zoo. And when they like didn't have enough funding, she made bracelets and sold them online and raised $250,000 as a six-year-old. Wow. I know. It was was amazing. Um, $250,000, this guy can't even hold on to any of his own stuff. And I still have to wipe his butt. Like, come on. She had some help from her mom, obviously, but um, it went viral and it was awesome. That's incredible. I'm still really excited about the future, though. If you think about where Facebook started as a website and now we have these apps on mobile devices, in the future, you can imagine that, like, We'll be wearing glasses and we'll be having watches and, you know, the technology will be really different. But I think the themes around connecting, using these technologies to connect with people, you saw some of that like with Facebook portal, which is a way to video call friends and family, Mm -hmm. which I did a ton of in COVID. All of this technology, I think will still be built around the idea of connecting people, but I'm excited about like the next technologies. I'm actually really excited about glasses because it will be awesome to not have to look at my phone every two minutes when I am trying to walk somewhere and I'm like walking confidently in the wrong direction. Right. That'll be wild. 
you know, Naomi, like it, it's interesting because obviously, so it's like one, one of your roles there is really kind of keeping the community safe. Right. And, you yes. know, and making the experience safe. And I want to talk to you a little bit about this from a Facebook perspective, but also just, you know, you as a human, the mental health aspect of the kind of comparative culture that we live in right now. And I think that nobody is immune to it. And it's got to be interesting for you probably experiencing both sides of it, like because you're part of the team that, you know, is building this software and, and an integral part of the experience. And then you as a person, you know, as a woman who's living during a pandemic and thought sort of one thing was going to go this way and it went the other way and just being alive in the world, you probably see things too and are affected by that. So what's your take on it? I mean, I think the issue of mental health is so important and it's something we think a ton about, especially as we're building these products that so many people are using. The research that we see suggests that The impact of social media in general and our products in particular is really depend. like it makes a difference in terms of how it makes you feel. Mm -hmm. Like if you are using Facebook to watch videos all day long and just sort of what we call passive consumption and scroll through the newsfeed, like it, it can make you feel more isolated or like not connected. But when we see people using Messenger to like talk to people Mm -hmm. or comment on people's videos, what we call like active participation, it actually makes you feel more connected. So we really need to think about what people are doing when they're using our products and give them tools to, you know, set time checks or like, you know, encourage them to take certain actions and not others. And I mean, I'm sure you have kids and you think about their use of technology. And this is definitely something that we think about all the time and are, you know, trying to research because a lot of this is is new. It's like, you know, I remember getting my first smartphone and now I'm on it like four, t- four hours a day. Right. <laughs> so, probably, probably more than that. Maybe it's on social four hours a day, but we spend so much time. So much time mm-hmm. in front of screens. Mm-hmm. Totally. And the, the question around like my own, just like, how do I navigate it? I think that scrutiny like and criticism is really, really important. If you're doing something that is this big and this sort of important that so many people rely on like it we should be like having people criticize and and give feedback otherwise you know like that is our responsibility and so i try to be really open to and grateful for all of the feedback i try to not over rotate when things seem really good i mean there have been times in the history of facebook when everyone thought we were like a unicorn and the best thing like leading up to the IPO. And there are times when things have been really bad. When we first launched Newsfeed, there were protests outside the office. People hated it. And so I try not to get too devastated in one direction or the other and just try to hear like the feedback and and learn and iterate. And how do you personally kind of monitor your time and really like outside of even social media, someone gave me the advice recently to check in with yourself like a few times a day and after certain things that you're doing, whether it's time spent with certain people or doing something just to kind of have a check-in and an almost like an assessment of like, how does this make me feel? Do I feel like, you know, my best sort of most optimistic self right now, or am I feeling some sort of way And I need to recognize that there could be a correlation, whether it's a toxic friendship or, you said, mindless scrolling or even comparing myself in some way, even without my sort of conscious knowledge of it, but just realizing that something has made me feel worse about myself. Often people say comparison is the thief of joy. 
right? Yeah. So how do we, how do we see all this without comparing? Obviously, obviously you can answer this for me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, you're going to think I'm a total nerd, which I am, but I have a list of cognitive errors, which are mistakes that my like mind makes, like not useful or healthy ways of thinking that I actually print out and put on my desk. And so the things like minimization, maximization, like when you minimize positive feedback and you maximize the negative feedback, I can only hear what was critical. I can't like take any of the compliments. Things like personalization, when I think everything is my fault, Mm -hmm. when again, like I had, it, it has nothing to do with me. Things like permanence, something bad happened today. And that means like things are going to be terrible forever. Like that's not true. You know, pervasiveness, something bad happened in this small aspect of my life. And I think everything in my life is terrible. Stuff like that, I think is, I just try to like check myself if I notice that I'm doing that. I know, I know. But other than that, honestly, I have my coping mechanisms are that I have what I call five musties, which are going to be so basic. I need to eat. I need to sleep. I need to have alone time. And I, like, if one of, if I don't get one of those things in a day, like if I'm hangry or like, I'm really tired or I've been like too on all day, like I'm really cranky. And I also really rely on exercise. Mm-hmm. I love surfing. I love, I have to work out. I think that really helps. And yeah, those are just like my musties that I need to hopefully do in a day. Right. If I can. That makes so much sense. And also, you know, I think that we can all attest to there's a lot of days where things go by and you just don't even do that sort of bare minimum. Bare minimum. You know, and that's really goes back to the whole idea of like you have to love yourself first or you cannot serve others. So it's like everything that you're trying I to do that. is you So what about like okay, this is a trigger word, but balance. It feels like your role there is completely immersive, right? How do you maintain time for yourself beyond the musties? Like, how do you create enough personal space? I think, you know, in the early days, I had no balance. I was sleeping at the office. We were like, all just graduated from college. I think I could do that then. And um, I, we worked 24 seven. It was like, um, your coworkers were your friends. Yeah, were your it's like an life. episode Everything of Silicon was... Valley. It kind of is. That show is painfully true. realistic sure. to me. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's it's true. No, I don't. After 16 years, I don't try not to work on the weekends. I, again, make time. I, I really love routines. I think a, a few people on your podcast have talked about this. I try to have me time in the morning to the extent that I can. And all of this is to say, look, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I think it's really much easier for me to prioritize myself. I mean, I'm going to agree. I'm going to (laughs) agree. Yeah. Like think about how much time you had before you had two kids. But I don't, that's the problem. And honestly, the fact that you could even acknowledge that though is huge because it would have never even occurred to me. I, I will say we always are like, we were such assholes. We thought we were so busy, you know, busy. It's like, you're never aware of anything. It's like you have one child and you're like, this is the hardest. And then you, it's everything. Totally. And for me, that's the lesson from Selma Glight as well is like, I don't have kids now, but back then I also thought I was too busy to to pick up the phone and call my grandmother. Right. What is so important? I don't even remember now what the hell it was that like I was working on that I couldn't go to 
West Palm Beach, Florida, mm-hmm. and visit her. And I recognize that now. And I'm actually going back to California in a few weeks for my dad's 70th birthday. And like, I'm going to spend a week with the family. And that's like something I will never, ever, ever regret. Right. And you and you will always be reminded by that tattoo, too. My chest tattoo. By your, by your chest plate. <laughs> Side ta- boob Yes, tattoo. by your chest plate tattoo. How are you like, as far as like, I love that you have this printout and I love that you have your kind of like must do list. Are you pretty regimented in terms of goal setting or are you fluid at this point? Are you able to take victories for everything you have accomplished? Where are you at? I feel like I've been working on number one in that four point life plan for my entire life. Everything that I think the work that I need to do is centered around one, which is love yourself. And like, how do you do it? I know. How do I do do it? I mean, I'm the last person to ask. I think that like, I don't know. Do you have any advice? (laughs) Here's the thing. I think that, okay. I do think that there's something about high functioning people, right? Where like, I don't know if you could definitely say, I kind of had a check in with myself the other day about something. And I realized that sometimes I feel too pulled in a thousand directions. I say yes to too many things. I try to take too much on. And even though I I think intrinsically that I have a good sense of self, if I'm honest, I think somewhere in my behavioral patterns is a suggestion that I need some sort of outer validation to feel like... I have value. And if I felt that I had value and I, in my mind, I do feel like I have value. I'm definitely not someone who like gets kicked around or I don't have toxic friends. I don't, I'm not someone who I feel like puts myself in situations where I'm treated less than, but I do some, so I don't accept that behavior from other people. But if I really like look at it, I think maybe I do a lot of kind of harmful behavior to myself yeah. in trying to prove to myself that there is a value. I don't know. Look, I, I totally, at least I am, can be my own worst enemy. If like I'm a Swiss cheese, I can only see the holes. I can't see the cheese. Mm-hmm. And so how do I do, like, how do I change? And I think a lot of this is just so subconscious, you know, intellectually, I understand like there's cheese there, you know, I'm, and, and there's so much to <laughs> there's cheese. There's cheese there and it's not Parmesan, uh, but cheese. it's Swiss and that's so tasty, right? And it's awesome and it's caring and it's like a good person. And I think that like, I really, I kind of believe in fake it till you make it. I think you just need to start reprogramming some of these like subconscious, like thoughts and feelings and pathways that you've been doing for so long so that they finally change. And also I think at some point you just wake up and you're like, I'm too old for this shit. Like this is my life now. And like, I don't really have time to be insecure and you just choose it at some point. The thing I'm really working on is getting more comfortable with rejection. I just think I still do value so much to your point. You were saying, you know, you don't have, we rely, I rely on, on, you know, external validation. And when I feel like I don't get that, that that that's really hard for me to, to deal with. And I'm just working on ways to not personalize that. Like we talked about, it probably doesn't have to do with me. Right. And, but are you finding, are you putting yourself out there? Like, is this in a personal way? Is this like in dating? Is this in business? Is this like, how, how do you feel like you're putting yourself at risk for rejection? 
Yeah, I think it happened. Like, think about all of the opportunities to be rejected in your life, whether it is dating or like, you know, if you do, if I do a proposal at work or if I like ask a friend if they want to hang out or whatever it is, I think for me, that's always been like a, a thing that triggers me and, and like, I can control that actually. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? We're all just a work in progress. And I think the, the the first step is really identifying it. And like you said, just knowing your tendencies. And one kind of interesting thing for me too, is with my daughter who's eight and you see how early on, like just the sort of social dynamic between girls starts and she'll tell me something. And, and I'm like, you know, honey, like I wish that I could tell you that I never feel rejected or I never walk into a party and feel like people are crowded somewhere where they're not like, Hey, come sit down. And you're still like standing there like grown ass woman. Like, Oh my God, should I go? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I wish that I could tell you that that was going to change, but it's not. So all you can ever do is try to, to, to recognize your own value and to realize you can't control other people and you can only ever control the way that you behave. I read, I read something recently where it wasn't like, it's not what's happening. That's the problem. It's your reaction to what's happening. Yes. So if we can just learn to control our reaction and our internal wild dialogue or monologue with ourselves, then hopefully, you know, we're taking a step towards being a little bit more kind and a little bit hopefully happier too. Naomi, knowing what you know today, and I feel like obviously you have had enormous success, and I don't know if you recognize that too, and sometimes being so immersed in something, it's hard to see the forest from the trees, but what would your having it all look like today? I think I do. I think I am happy, and I have so much to be grateful for, and I don't have a specific story in my head. I'm really open, Mm -hmm. like I said, to whatever life brings, and I think that's a much healthier way to view having it all. True that. For anyone who doesn't follow you, where could they where could they follow along with your journey? Naturally on Instagram or Facebook. Amazing. <laughs> Naomi Gleit. And um, yeah, thank you, Sarah, for having me. And I just wanted to say your daughter is so lucky Aww. to have you as a mom. That is so sweet. I wish my I kind of wish my mom told me that when I was eight. Oh <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like all of those things. But honestly, like yeah. I think that first of all, thank you for saying that, but it's such a wonderful reminder too, especially about checking in with yourself and like, how am I treating myself? It's like, I have somebody watching and like the way that I talk mm. about myself and the way that I dismiss myself, even subconsciously or, you know, in a way that's maybe under the guise of like self-deprecating humor, like she's going to pick up on that. And what example all those little are you messages. For her? Yeah. And, and through that, hopefully I also am reminded to be more aware. So hopefully yeah. it's a win-win. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope to see you in sure person soon. And thank you so much for being here Me today. Too. Thank you. Bye, Sarah. Having It All in Other Lies is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Bigas. You can follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore Riff and the show at Having It All Podcast. See you next week.